0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. We're running just a bit behind and we will be making time up, I'm sure. I am absolutely honored, proud, and pleased to introduce our next keynote speaker, Jose Arieta, Associate Deputy Assistant Secretary of the US Department of Human Services, HHS. This man is credited with leading the first blockchain implementation in the United States federal government. Please join me in welcoming Jose Arrieta. Uh, well, first of all, thank you all for allowing me to share our story with you. And Tiffany uh, and Tori, thank you so much for having us. I thought what I would do today and what I typically do is start with a little story. Um, so I have two kids. I have a six-year-old and a four-year-old. And my son plays soccer. I've never played soccer in the high school. Never, our high school didn't have soccer. I know nothing about it. And he said to me one day, he said, Dad, I'm really bad at soccer. You know, c- can you help me get better? So I started to try and put it on TV. And I started to try and help him with what the coaches were saying Um, And and while watching it on TV, I I noticed I would hear things like uh, a moment of genius from Lionel Messi or, you know, intuition by Cristiano Ronaldo, unrivaled by any human being on earth, and and phrases like that. And I thought to myself, you know, how is it that they can actually execute in that way? Um, But others that play at the same level, have the same level of conditioning, have done the same skills, cannot. And and what I realized, and I'm going to tie this to blockchain, I promise. And and what I realized is is that they have a sense of intuition as to what's happening around them. You see, they don't have to actually see everything that's happening. They can feel it. And, And that's what I think is really important about this technology that we often forget to tell in the story, is that a distributed ledger that records behavior and activity, gives you a sense of feeling as it relates to your suppliers, as it relates to your customers, as it relates to the folks that use it. And that, that's a huge change. Now, if you look at human history, right, if you, if you go back, we were hunter-gatherers, we used passive tools for our work. You shot an arrow to kill something. You, you cleaned some farmland and planted some seeds to grow something. We were farmers for a thousand years. But we've entered the augmented age where we actually have machine support to generate ideas. You actually now have a capability through technology to actually allow you to test your imagination, to actually allow you to test your intuition. Now think about that. And I'm, I'm gonna give you a, a real world example of a real world example of our implementation and then something looking forward in the future. You can now test your intuition, test your ideas. And you've never been able to do that before in human history. Only if you architect a solution, only if you architect a technology stack that will allow you to do that. And I give you one more example. I love giving examples from my kids, they're really easy to remember. If, you know, when my son learned to ride a bike, I could have let him ride the bike with training wheels that I rode when I was six years old. But they have a different infrastructure to teach you how to ride a bike now for six-year-olds. It's a balanced bike. And what it does is it allows your brain to actually learn how to balance without the support of training wheels. It's evolved and it's changed. And I think that blockchain technology and the way we're using blockchain technology, which I'm going to describe to you now, actually provides that. And I think that's extremely powerful. So the difference, and and Professor Liu and I, he's here someplace, wrote an article on this, and Professor Liu will share it with all of you if you want, you just have to find him, Jim raise your hand. And the difference between organizations and companies that will actually be successful in the short term and successful in the long term is their investment in that infrastructure. Because if you're just running robotic processing automation to augment your existing process, guess what? You're building over a legacy infrastructure and you're not getting the true value. You're taking that old bicycle that I have from when I was six years old in 1988 or 1986, and you're taping on training wheels and you're hoping that you learn to ride before the tape breaks. And if you're just using artificial intelligence to actually pull together data from multiple systems and analyze it and provide a computational feedback, if you're using it to think, right, robotic process automation is to make computation to think, you're still stuck in your legacy IT systems. However, if you recreate a nervous system or an ecosystem that touches all of your suppliers and all of those that you're interacting with, you've not now created the ability to recreate value exchange and that's what we've done at HHS. What we've done at HHS is we've taken five different operating systems that award about $24 billion in business every single year, over a million pages of documentation, unstructured and structured, and we've actually cleansed all that data and put it into a standard data taxonomy in hyperledger fabric. We're literally using machine learning algorithms. We're backing into it. We're not trying to change the structure of the industry from the top down. We're backing into a solution set. We're using machine learning algorithms to cleanse the data. A real simple example is, If I asked five of you in the room to say what version of whatever report you're writing, one of you would say version, one of you would say VER, one of you would say V.6. We're using machine learning algorithms to recognize that in a structured data set, that all means version. We're cleansing 70% of the data on the way in. We're storing it in hyperledger fabric and a standard data taxonomy. And then we're actually using that data to re to rebuild how we deliver value to our end users. And why are we using blockchain, guys? And this question keeps being asked all the time, I just wanna say it. Because it's really darn expensive to take an existing database and add another application to it. I just added two decimal places to an existing application that's tied to one single database, I won't pick on the company. There are 55 other applications that actually interface with that. I added two decimal places. It cost me $1.3 million to this point in time. It's still not done. Why? because I got to make the change to that application. I got to make the change to every other application in that stack, there's 55 of them, and I got to run IV and VM that entire stack. Now what we're doing is creating a standard data layer, and we're actually building microservices, not applications. We are building microservices off of that data layer that are execute functions. So when I want to add two decimal places to a microservice, I just delete the old microservice and build a new one that has two more decimal places, and change the taxonomy. So I'll give you an example of what we've proven. This functionally works. And now, every single actor in my business environment, there's over 20,000 people that actually work in the business environment that I have some level of policy authority, as much as you can have in the federal government, right? It's always mixed. And now all 20,000 of those individuals have access to a standard data set that's a representation of the entirety of HHS, $24 billion, a million pages of contract documentation, 100,000 actions, available to them at any given time. And they also have access. They don't have to go to an app store. They also have access directly to that microservice. And individually, if they want to spend $10,000 to actually change that microservice so that it meets their need in some form or fashion, or so that it takes into account another aspect of some data set that they need to do their analysis, they have the ability to do that in a distributed manner without changing the underlying data set. So the example that I like to provide is this. I, you know, when you have kids, you get invited to these terrible birthday parties uh, every weekend. But they're horrible, right? And the morning ones are the worst. And, and you never, ever, ever have a present. So you go to Target or the mall or something, and you're going to buy a present, And so my wife and I never go in stores. I avoid them, even grocery stores at all costs. So my wife picks out the present and I'm like visibly shaking because it's like this line looks really long and, and she's looking feverishly at her phone. And when we get to check out, she literally takes her phone out and she shows it to the cashier. The price on Amazon is $12 cheaper. The cashier immediately discounted what we bought by $12. Why? Because she was empowered with that data to make a decision at the point of purchase. This is about trust in data. This is not about trust in individual people that we're doing business with. It's about trust in data to empower you to actually make a decision at the point of purchase. That's just one of the microservices. One of the other microservices that we built that's kind of fascinating, right? We go and hire someone like Sean. the TBI expert, the number one TBI expert in the world, we hire him into HHS and we give them a little bit of budget to study TBI. And then we say, before you spend any of that money, make sure you go and learn the federal acquisition regulation. It's only a couple thousand pages and size seven print because we don't want you to break any rules. I mean, do you think as a taxpayer, that's actually adding value when he's spending his time doing that? Is that what we hired him to do? He's the top traumatic brain injury researcher in the world. Maybe top 10. I don't want to blow up his ego. We're not adding value doing that. So what we've done is we've taken the historical data out of five, writing system, out of five systems. We have 45 systems, by the way, but we're just targeting five right now. And we've provided it to him. We've allowed him to read it. We've allowed him to state his objectives and his risk and delete the things that don't, he doesn't need to actually do his job. We've empowered him, the person that services him to make a decision at the point of purchase, and we've empowered him to actually focus in on his objectives and his risks by improving the process. Now, our business plan, if, you, if Dr. Lou sends you our article, our business plan generates a 9 to 10x return. We call it the Pele multiplier. And I'm not a soccer fan, by the way. I had to look up who Pele was. I thought he was a singer. Um, yeah, it sounds like a singer. And and how did we do that? Because we micromanaged investment. Sure, moving our technology to a cloud environment generates tech modernization savings. For those of you that are technologists, you'll understand that. We've lowered our cost. Sure, making the process go faster generates savings as it relates to FTE. We actually zeroed that out. Because savings to FTE in the federal space, you know what that means? It means cut in jobs. And that means you have to deal with your union which means that your ability to actually deploy a capability like this will be delayed by a number of months and possibly years. So we just zeroed that out. But we tracked the investment dollars that went into that and savings at the point of purchase. Through our algorithm in 10 product categories, which the Buy Smarter team created our algorithm, they'll be speaking over there at 1230. You guys definitely wanna check it out to get an understanding of how they created it. We identified $2 billion in savings. So our, our 9X return on investment, I'm gonna tell you how it was generated. $2 billion in savings, but we said, "Mm, are we gonna capture all that? Let's risk adjust that to 720 million, and I said, no, 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 let's make it an even more conservative business case. Let's risk adjust that 720 million by 40%, and let's apply that 40% over a four year period of time. 5% the first year, 25% the second year, 50% the third, 75% the fourth. Our return on investment on a $33.7 million business case was 900%. It was actually 896%. Easier to round up. Sounds better. Here's the deal. We actually achieved all those objectives investing $3 million. We invested $3 million and we achieved those objectives. Now, I didn't change the math and the business case because I didn't want everyone to think that I was lying. It's almost unbelievable. That's the true value. And there's an ability now to expand that from there because there's a clear use case with a full set of financials that demonstrate savings. And for those of you that are like, eh, uh, we'll have a full authority to operate within the federal government before Thanksgiving. It'll be the first blockchain with authority to operate in the entire federal government before Thanksgiving. And that what we're doing is we're inverting and, and disintermediating ourselves, and we're pushing data and information to the individual user in the field, and we're letting them build back off that standardized data layer. You can do whatever you want from an execution perspective with our data. We'll provide data governance. We'll ensure the data is standardized. And that's how we'll work with you. That is our new business model. We've had agencies come to us and they want to do business with us, and they say, well, we don't spend a lot of money. We're not a big spender. You probably don't want to do business with us. I say, do you have a clear data taxonomy? Because if you have a clear data taxonomy, I want to do business with you. Because taxonomy is more important than volume in what we're doing. Now I, I want to close because I know we're already behind schedule. I want to close and kind of just share a little story. And I'm not a healthcare expert, guys, and just be honest with you. So what really made me interested in working HHS is about a year ago, my mom almost died. She almost died from sepsis. Okay. And I learned a lot about it, not as a doctor, as a concerned son, through her little journey with it. So about a year ago before Thanksgiving, about a week before Thanksgiving, she thinks she has a cold. She decides to take it easy, sit on the couch, go to bed early, drink tea, you know, all the things that you think you'll do if you're going to recover. After a couple days of doing that, my father notices that she's not making sense when she talks and she's not able to, like, really control her body well. So he literally picks her up and he takes her to the hospital. And the little rural hospital where we live in Northeastern Pennsylvania, they immediately say she has pneumonia. We're gonna put her on an IV drip. She'll start feeling better in, 24, in 12 hours, and in 24 hours she'll feel really good and we may have to keep her for a couple days and then she can come home. Now lucky for us, my brother in law is a paramedic. Now as a paramedic, you see a lot of sick people and you have intuition. You may, not, you may not have proof as to what is true, what is right and what is wrong, but you have intuitions about things. My brother-in-law grabbed me and he said, listen, he said, your sisters are hysterical. He said, you need to tell the doctor to send her to Scranton, which is a large hospital center, uh, Scranton CMC, a large hospital center in, in Scranton, Pennsylvania, where I'm from, about an hour away. He's like, I don't think it's pneumonia. And I think if you don't send her there now, it's going to be too late. So I told the doctor, This is just an intuition, a moment of genius. So on the way to Scranton CMC, her left lung collapsed. 90% of her vital organs at some level were infected in some form or fashion. She went into a coma, and she was intubated. And I sat with the doctor that they brought in from New York City, actually, uh, to treat her. And he said to me, he said, I think it's sepsis. I'm pretty sure it's sepsis. And he said, So I'm going to put her on a cocktail of drugs and the drugs are going to kill her, but they're also going to keep her alive. And I'm going to test her and I'm going to share that data with some centralized repository that can identify multiple strands of sepsis with that data. And then once I find out what it is, I'll give her the drug she needs and I'll give her a drug that will help her recover from all the other drugs that I put her on to keep her alive to this point in time. And at the time, I was building another block. We actually built another blockchain before we did this at HHS, but that's another story. But it still took a couple of days to actually share that information. And I think as I've listened, and by the way, fascinating and really excited to be here, Tori, and listen. But as I listen to the conversations in the, the upstairs and down here, I think that if you truly want to transform healthcare, focus on a specific problem like that where there are seven, eight strands of sepsis. You have identifiers for what they are. You have a standard data taxonomy. And actually sharing that information over a series of nodes and allowing, ho- allowing a hospital center to access it so they can run the test more quickly will actually generate an outcome at a very low cost. Now, lucky for me, they actually identified the strand that it was. They treated my mom. And after a couple of days and a a couple of days of like hallucinating in the hospital room, I guess it was from some of the medicine, she's fully recovered and she's absolutely fine. But it didn't have to go that far. What blockchain can do for healthcare or for an organization is it can empower the individuals that work in that organization to test their imaginations and to test their intuitions and to do it in real time with real data and not spend all your time actually collecting the information and standardizing it so you can analyze it. And for anybody that says it's not transformational, if we can build one, an HHS that's fully functioning, gonna service 20,000 people in November when we turn on the ATO, gonna j- generate a 900% ROI on a $33.7 million investment, but we actually only invested $3 million to get those outcomes, you can too. It was it's really a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for listening to me. I hope you have a wonderful time.